Hey everybody, it's Ryan here. So the podcast you're about to listen to is part of a series about an almost president of the past. But as I'm sure you're aware, 2024 is an election year. And with that comes a whole slew of present day almost presidents. And so every Thursday, Kevin and I will be putting out episodes centered around the 2024 presidential election. We'll be talking about all the important headlines and the almost presidents making them. And we would love to have you join us as we discuss it all. Good, the bad, the ugly, the even uglier, and the just downright ridiculous. So that's every Thursday morning, wherever you get podcasts. Now, enjoy this episode, and thank you for listening to the Almost Presidents Podcast. Good morning, class. For today's history lesson, we're going to talk about someone very important, the President of the United States of America. Now, I'm sure a lot of your parents have told you that maybe one day you'll grow up to be the President. I want to let you know right now that that is a lie. Not one of you in this class will ever be President. Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 9 of the Almost Presidents Podcast. I'm Ryan. And I'm Kevin. And this is our monthly podcast where we talk American presidential politics through the lens of the loser. So Kevin, how are things going this month? I know something uh, something huge happened to you last month. I don't know if you wanted to share on the mics. Yeah, I mean, the uh, big news on my end, obviously, is that I got engaged recently. Sorry, she's in the room, so she's celebrating. But uh, oh, right yeah, on. So that yeah. was the big news on on my end. You you have an almost first lady, I guess. Yeah, I guess I do. I guess I do. So you know, obviously that's the big news. We had a good time. We had a bunch of family come out to celebrate the engagement, and now I'm just gonna basically bury my head in wedding planning for the next who knows how long. So that'll be fun. Well, look, a warm congratulations from uh, myself, and hopefully from a. Uh, all of our listeners as well, of course. And uh, yeah, that's that's awesome, man. Yeah. What about on uh, your end? What's been going on with you? Well, I'm starting to uh, hopefully spread the, uh, the the joy and hopefully not the stresses of podcasting with my students. Uh, I started a podcasting elective. Oh, that's awesome. What are your kids podcasting about? So I'm not sure yet. Uh, tomorrow is actually going to be the second day of the elective. So I actually found out that my school has a microphone. They've had it this whole time. That's just been sitting in the music teacher's room, but he doesn't really use it. And honestly, it's nicer than the one that I'm recording into right now. Like I might take it home on days that we're recording because it's just, it's so fucking nice. But last week during the first time that we met, one of the kids said, I'm just here because I want to go on the computers. And I think this would be the easiest uh, place for me to do that from what it sounds like. The other kid just wanted to see what it's about. And then the last kid was just, he didn't even sign up for it. He just popped in. And uh, he's more interested in learning how to work with audio. So I think that'll be a pretty interesting kid to work with because that I can absolutely teach him from jump. Whereas the other kids, I think I do just want to let them noodle around on the mics just to get a feel for what it's like. But I would be interested to see them actually form a podcast, you know, from uh, the ground up. Yeah, that would be really cool. And I mean, hey, I think sometimes those kids who just want to be distracted, sometimes they're your most creative kids if you can actually get them to sit down and focus oh absolutely this this 
yeah, I mean, all of those kids would make extremely interesting podcasts. So we'll see what winds up coming out of it. I mean, I, I did ditch my uh, D&D elective in order to do this one. But ultimately, that one was – it was fun and all. But I had the vampire as essentially the main antagonist. But the kids just couldn't figure out that this vampire was never going to like – hold up his end of the bargain and make them immortal vampire lords. So eventually I was just like, in my head, I'm like, how many times are these kids going to get tricked? You know, <laughs> like they're never going to figure this out. So I was just like, all right, you know, like, let me give the podcasting thing a shot. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see how it goes. So. Yeah, that's super exciting. You know, I think it's, it's awesome to see that middle school age kids can kind of get out there and do these things in school and, you know, learn how to talk about things that they're passionate about and how to put together a podcast. I think that's so awesome. Yeah. We'll just see if I can help them get there. Um, Kevin, how do people reach our podcast? So as always, you can find us on social media, on Facebook, you can search the almost president's podcast on Instagram. Again, it's at the almost president's podcast. And then on Twitter, we're at almost POTUS pod. You can also email us with any questions that you might have. Our email is thealmostpresidentspodcast at gmail.com. Feel free to shoot us any questions or hate mail that you might have. We welcome both. Man, you got to stop with this hate mail thing. We might actually get somebody telling us to go fuck ourselves. (laughs) And then we'll have to have them on the show. Yeah. Yeah, hey. If they have something interesting to say, I guess. It's true, especially if they ran for president and lost. All right. Well, enjoy the show, everybody. So today we'll be diving into part 9 of a multi-part series on Samuel Tilden and the disastrous election of 1876. If you haven't checked out the other episodes in this series and you want to go back and start at the beginning of the story, feel free to put this episode on pause and check those out. We'll be right here when you get back. But as for everybody else here who's all caught up or just wants to get going, let's go ahead and get started. So after quite a bit of buildup, we're going to finally dig into the election of 1876. On this episode and Unlike on last season, if you listen to our our Bobby Kennedy series, obviously his campaign was tragically cut short by his assassination. This election is going to be long and drawn out. In fact, the partisan conflicts and the electoral disputes are going to drag on up until inauguration and arguably a bit after that as well. But more on that later. For now, we're going to have to return to Congressman Rutherford B. Hayes first and catch up on what he's been doing while Tilden takes on the tweed ring and lays the groundwork for his campaign and Grant's administration, goes about making enough of a mess of things on their end to lay the groundwork for just about anybody else's campaign. If we're going to understand why Hayes wound up winning the Republican nomination, though, we're going to have to take a look at his gubernatorial races and his tenure as governor of Ohio. So starting with the gubernatorial races, as a congressman, Hayes quickly found himself drifting towards the radical camp in the style of people like Thaddeus Stevens, who's someone we talked about a lot in the first few episodes of this series. In fact, some of his quotes from this time period are practically indistinguishable from Stevens' fiery speeches. Hayes once said, quote, Do not, I pray you, admit back to the Union those who have slaughtered half a million of our countrymen until their clothes are dried and they are reclad. I do not wish to sit side by side with men whose garments smell of the blood of my kindred. Unquote. And this makes perfect sense given what we know about Hayes' past as a Union officer. 
Who can blame him for feeling animosity towards the people that he had just gotten through fighting? Try to remember that some of those over half a million countrymen who died in the war were his friends. So he backed the radical theory that the Confederate states had lost their status as states and thus their lawful rights as states, and he also supported suffrage for former slaves. And to be clear, these were very radical positions at the time, even though they sound pretty milquetoast today. And while Ohio did not have a particularly radical constituency, they didn't seem to mind Hayes' radicalism. He was re-elected easily in 1886, and so he continued his drift towards the radical side. But outside of the big issue of the day, Reconstruction, Hayes got bored of being a congressman. He said, quote, The truth is, this being an errand boy to 150,000 people tires me. End quote. Luckily for Hayes, some of his supporters put together a campaign for him in the upcoming Ohio governor race, and he just narrowly beat out Democrat Alan G. Thurman in a year when Democrats swept the Ohio legislature. But now with the Democratic legislature and a broader constituency, Hayes suddenly wasn't so radical anymore. He began to focus instead on issues that weren't controversial at the time, such as prison reform, better treatment for the mentally ill, a new geological survey of Ohio, and state-sponsored orphanages. He did, though, to his credit, maintain his defense of black suffrage, although his state of Ohio maintained its opposition to such a thing. Hayes served two terms and expanded his margin of victory when he won re-election, which could be because he won people over with his policies, or it could be due to the fact that his opponent, George Pendleton, made some pretty tasteless remarks criticizing Hayes' military background and just overall ran a pretty bad campaign. Hayes found that he liked being governor because it was, in his words, not too much hard work with plenty of time to read. And if that's truly the case, if that's what it's like being governor, you can just sign me up to be the next governor of Ohio. Uh, I think, you know, I I speak for everyone. I say I I wish I had more time to read. So, yeah, throw me in the cabinet. I mean, if the governorship of Ohio is that easy, then I'm sure a cabinet post will be like absolute cakewalk. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So, you know, you got two candidates right there, Ohio. Um, anyhow, despite this, he decided to leave office in 1872 to run a losing congressional race in his old district in the hopes of helping Grant win Ohio. After losing that race, he took a brief hiatus before he was called back to run another gubernatorial race in 1875. At this point, Ohio Republicans saw him as something of a magician in a state that was very difficult for Republicans to win. And so they wanted him to run against incumbent Governor William Allen. Now, at this point, you can probably tell that Hayes is something of a political chameleon. He starts as a radical among radicals, and then, when it's convenient, he pivots to a more moderate position. In his 1875 race, this chameleon Hayes decided that it was politically advantageous to go after Catholics. This was following legislation that would permit Catholic priests to attend to prisoners in the Ohio penitentiary, something which, up until that point, was only done by a Protestant minister. This inflamed tensions between the Catholics in Ohio and the German-descended Protestants, and Hayes saw it as an opportunity to peel off those German voters who had been loyal to Democrats for some time. Now, something that's going to be worth noting here, it, just because nowadays it's a little bit more in fashion to, to hate the Catholics, um, and I think nowadays it's for really good reasons, but back in those days, anti-Catholicism could be a pretty harsh form of bigotry. And oftentimes it was wrapped up in just kind of straight up racism toward Italians or Irish minority groups. 
Nowadays, the Catholic Church takes a lot of heat for the various scandals involving sexual abuse towards children. But in Hayes' day, people just weren't concerned about this, obviously, because there weren't any prominent examples of it at the time, or at least that people were aware of. Instead, there was a combination of concerns over the papacy and the power it might have over Catholics, as well as, like I said earlier, just a general bigotry towards minority groups. Hayes' victory in 1875 did two things. First, it sparked talk of a presidential campaign. If Hayes could win in a competitive state like Ohio, surely he was a good pick for the top of the ticket. And second, it cemented anti-Catholicism as part of the Republican agenda for that upcoming election. And mom, if you're listening, sorry, he's not your candidate, I guess. The big moment for Hayes as a presidential hopeful was when Ohio Senator John Sherman, who was the brother of General William Tecumseh Sherman, wrote an open letter to the press endorsing Hayes for president. In his letter, he emphasized the stakes of the election and pointed out that Hayes might be the only politician with the political skill to pull off a victory, given everything working against the Republicans that year. Now keep in mind that presidential campaigns were simpler in those days. Unlike nowadays when you have to get together a super PAC, raise millions if not billions of dollars, and start flooding the market with campaigns, speeches, and volunteer phone bankers, Or, of course, now you can also just go on a failed Twitter space that crashes and have a a few tech people endorse you or something. But um, in Hayes' time, those things weren't an option. Uh, The Twitter spaces were actually even worse back then, although just barely. In in Hayes' time, you could accidentally get roped into a presidential campaign because other people wanted you to run. And that's basically what happened to Hayes here. Just like DeSantis got accidentally roped (laughs) into Elon's podcast. Oh, shit. That was his announcement. (laughs) Right. Fair point. Sherman's letter prompted more and more people to come around to the idea of a Hayes ticket, and eventually the Ohio Republican Convention unanimously voted to nominate him, and thus he was a Republican primary candidate. In the same way that Tilden was a perfect foil for Grant because of his history of civil service reform, Hayes would prove to be a good candidate in light of Grant's scandals as well although for a slightly different reason. And this is something that I'm going to call the Joe Biden effect. And you'll see why in a minute, obviously. So when a president is very controversial and scandalous, voters have a preference for candidates that are largely boring and unexciting rather than bold and visionary. Of course, I've named this after our current president, Joe Biden, because his 2020 campaign message was at least implicitly, if not explicitly, make American politics boring again. Biden was a long-standing institutional guy who, for the most part, lived a very inoffensive political life. He often found himself in the center on major issues, and he worked hard to appeal to Republican voters. He never championed controversial political positions, and he rarely said anything, at least intentionally, not referring to various gaffes and slip-ups, that would shock or piss off any American. And it's no wonder that he ran a successful campaign right after Donald Trump, who made every possible effort to shock and piss off pretty much every American, uh, I guess, except for his base. So Hayes is a classic example of the Joe Biden effect. While Hayes wasn't particularly well-known outside of Ohio, he had a reputation for being honest and inoffensive. Henry Adams, who was a prominent political commentator that descended from John Adams, said that Hayes was, quote, a third-rate non-entity whose only recommendations are that he is obnoxious to no one. And obviously, Adams intended that as a searing criticism, but at a time when the Grant administration was fighting off scandals on all sides, being obnoxious to no one is exactly what is desired. 
Another chip that fell in Hayes' favor was when Grant finally decided that he was going to step aside for the 1876 race. Because remember now, it wouldn't be for another 70 years or so before it was established that presidents could only pursue two terms. In Grant's day, it was just precedent. And many in Grant's inner circle were actually encouraging him to be the first person to land a third term. That honor, of course, would go to FDR. Although it is worth mentioning that Grant actually would pursue a third term, albeit unsuccessfully. But that wasn't until 1880. And in this pursuit, he wasn't even able to secure the Republican nomination. It would go instead to James Garfield, who would go on to win the election of 1880, but lose in the court of public opinion regarding the candidate with the best facial hair. So that would go to his opponent who didn't win, but definitely wins for the best facial hair. Um, I'm sorry, you know, James Garfield Winfield, Scott Hancock has the mustache goatee combo that stylistically and aesthetically just beats a plain old beard. I mean, I don't know if you agree with me on this point, Kevin, but I'm looking at this thing and I mean, you could tell you put time on it into this, you know? Yeah, definitely something a little bit more elegant about it. I mean, Garfield, it's it's kind of, you know, more straightforward. He looks like the type of guy who looks you in the eye when you shake his hand. Um, this this is a little bit more artful. Yeah, he does look kind of, and we'll post this picture on our social medias as well. He does, now that you mentioned James Garfield as a guy who would shake your hand, this guy kind of does look like he'd pick your pocket when, he, you sh- he looks, when he's shaking your hand. <laughs> he, he looks he looks like he'd, he'd sell you some like third rate shitty leather bag on the street. Yeah, and just kind of carries a gun at his hip at all times. This guy looks like he's ready to draw. Yeah, for to sure. Draw, to for draw sure. on fire. But we want to jump the gun on Winfield Scott Hancock and give away too much as far as facial hair uh, conversation goes, because that might be saved if we wind up covering him in a season. We'll see if he winds up being interesting beyond just the mustache and goatee he's got going. But as far as Grant goes, even before he actually pursued a third term in the White House those years later, at the time when he was finishing up his second one, there was good reason to think that he could have gone ahead and pursued that third term. First, the incumbency advantage is a hell of a thing. We know this in politics. It's really hard to beat a sitting president in an election. And probably because, as the saying goes, the devil you know is better than the one that you don't. Or as Joe Biden says, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. And then the next thing is that despite everything that happened in the past few years, definitely listen to episode eight if you want to hear about Grant scandals. But to name a few, the whiskey ring, the gold ring economic downturn, which was, you know, another thing. Grant was still Grant. I mean, come on, this was a damn near legendary war hero. And as someone who fought to keep the country together, he in many ways represented the union to people. In 1872, a bipartisan group of Republicans and Democrats actually united behind a candidate to try and unseat Grant. And not only did Grant defeat them, but he did it easily and by a wide margin. Even in his worst days, the guy seems untouchable. And so both sides still appeared to be afraid of Grant's relative strength in the upcoming election. In December of 1875, Congress passed a resolution by a 233 to 18 vote stating their opposition to any president serving more than two terms. The resolution said that seeking a third term would be, quote, unwise, unpatriotic, and fraught with peril to our free institutions. Up until that point, Grant had either declined to answer questions about re-election Ori had stated quite strongly that he would not seek a third term, saying he, quote, would not accept the nomination if it were tendered, unless it should come under such circumstances as to make it an imperative duty, circumstances not likely to arise. Interest in a third term of Grant waned at this point. 
And Grant, who likely wasn't too interested at this point anyway, finally stated categorically in a public letter in 1875 that he would not seek a third term. So with Grant out of the way, the nomination was wide open on the Republican side, which was great news for Hayes supporters, but it was also great news for the series of other candidates that were eyeing the nomination as well. The Republican National Committee decided to hold the convention in Cincinnati this year, which was another chip in Hayes' favor because Cincinnati is you know, in his home state of Ohio. And at the start of that convention, committee chairman Edwin Morgan stated that, quote, there appears to be at the present time no one to whom the unerring finger points as the only candidate. And this was also really great news for Hayes, as he was still something of an underdog candidate. So if the finger wasn't pointing to someone, he had a shot. He had strong support in Ohio, but elsewhere, not so much. And he was certainly not a favorite for the nomination at that time. But Morgan's opening statement was bad news for supporters of James G. Blaine, who was the favorite for the nomination at the time. He had been the Speaker of the House for the past six years before the Democrats took back the House in 1875, and he was known to be a very charismatic guy. His supporters called him the Magnetic Man. And we won't go too deep on Blaine here, but since he's an important character here, we'll have to spend a little bit more time on him. First, before we talk about Blaine at all, I just want to make this point known. Blaine's supporters had the coolest name for their little political movement out of any that I'm aware of in American history, and maybe just in general in, in all of history. We're talking way cooler than the Bernie Bros or MAGA or any of that nonsense. No, Blaine's fans, this their name was the Blaniacs, which I just I think that's an awesome name. Really cool. I think it is, too. I think it works on three levels. It sounds good. It incorporates his name into it, and it also makes him sound smart. Because you hear Blaniacs, you also think Brainiacs. Oh, yeah. I mean, I can tell that they're going for like Maniacs. Oh, but, yeah. I guess but, the one in four that's not great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But but uh, but maybe, yeah, you, you kind of hear Brainiacs as well. Another one I kind of like, and again, nothing compares to Blaniacs. I'm with you on this. Yang Gang for Andrew Yang. Sounds kind of cool. Oh, yeah. That one was kind of fun. Yeah. I got a couple buttons with that one on it, usually with a uh, weed leaf or something or something related to math. <laughs> I think that was his oh, big nice. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wasn't one yeah, of is... Andrew Yang's also just math, make America uh, think harder or something like that. I love Andrew Yang. Yeah, he, he's a good guy. I like Andrew Yang. Um, so anyways, getting back to the magnetic man, James G. Blaine. Going into the convention, Blaine was the most popular candidate, but he was also the most unpopular in that pretty much everyone who wasn't a Blaniac was a massive Blaine anti-fan. I tried to come up with some pun for Blaine's detractors here, but I just couldn't come up with that. Here, how's this? Uh, how's this? A no-blainer. <laughs> a no-blainer. Okay. All right. All right. Although that makes it sound like you support him I too, tr- right? Because he's a no-brainer, you know? I don't know. Oh, yeah. Vote Blaine. It's a no-blainer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, okay. I thought I was better, but okay. <laughs> we gave it a shot. Well, yeah, listeners, if you think of anything, send it in. And so anyways, it's worth talking about why Blaine was this polarizing guy. So early on in Blaine's speakership, he overturned a motion that would revoke a land grant from the Little Rock and Fort Smith Railroad Company. And in turn, Warren Fisher, who was a contractor for that company, offered him a deal selling railroads for commission. So just on the basis of this alone, we've got something that uh, while, while certainly not illegal necessarily, it looks pretty sketchy, right? He's overturning this land grant um, and he's 
getting some basically some money for it. He's getting a deal selling railroads. So a little sketchy, right? But then he sold $130,000 in railroad bonds to friends and associates. And when those bonds declined in value, in order to not look like he had scammed his friends, he bought them back with the help of a $64,000 loan from Tom Scott, who was another railroad owner. And he was kind of, you can almost think of him as like a Bill Gates in his time. Tom Scott was this very, very, very rich guy. Um, He was involved, obviously, in the railroads, which are a very lucrative industry. And Scott never asked for repayment of the loan, which is probably because he understood how valuable it is to have the Speaker of the House indebted to you. Like, that's probably going to be worth the investment on its own, right? Now, when a Democratic-leaning paper broke the story in April of 1876, Blaine spoke on the House floor and insisted that his transactions had been, quote, open as day and that he had not been involved in any of the accused transactions, nor had he received money from any of the alleged parties. He then read letters from Tom Scott and other officials who stated that he had no involvement in the transaction. That may have worked for some people, but it didn't work for the House Judiciary Committee, who called a witness named James Mulligan, who managed the books for Warren Fisher. Mulligan claimed to have a series of letters that were exchanged between Fisher and Blaine. Now, understandably, Blaine, who probably knew that he was guilty, started to get a little nervous. So he spoke to the only Republican on the committee and ordered him to adjourn just as Mulligan was about to testify. After the adjournment, Blaine rushed over to Mulligan's hotel and more or less begged him for the letters, and somehow he got a hold of them. He then denied repeated requests from the Judiciary Committee to turn over the letters, insisting that they were private communications and irrelevant to the case. But Blaine realized that, with the convention coming up, he couldn't afford to be censured or have a subpoena handed to him. After all, he was no Teflon Don, and as such, he couldn't afford to have his suspicious financial dealings exposed. So Blaine summoned the one tool at his disposal, the thing that had likely gotten him out of every other bind he had been in in his life, his magnetism. On June 5th, one week from the convention, Blaine appeared on the House floor, and standing over his desk, he slammed a stack of letters down in front of him. And he said, quote, I am not afraid to show the letters. Thank God Almighty. I am not afraid to show them. And with some sense of humiliation, with a mortification which I do not pretend to conceal, with a sense of outrage which I trust any man in my position would feel, I invite the confidence of 44 million of my fellow countrymen while I read those letters from this desk, unquote. And I think the sheer drama of that quote is probably enough to give you a sense of what followed. He shuffled the letters carefully and read with such oratorical skill that no one noticed that he wasn't actually reading the entirety of each of the letters. And of course, those sections that he did choose to read made him look completely innocent. No surprise there. But the performance didn't end there. The RNC was just a week out at this point, and Blaine wanted to avoid any further questioning. One hot summer Sunday, as he was walking to church, Blaine collapsed into his wife's arms and was rushed home in a cab where he lay unconscious while a parade of Republicans visited him to show sympathy for his horrible plight. The performance was a roaring success. Blaine was cleared of all charges, and the case pretty much ended there. It was a masterful display of escape artistry that would have made Chris Angel jealous. Blaine managed to save a career that was almost certainly about to go down in flames. But he wasn't entirely off the hook. You see, scandals don't just go away. Even if on paper you were cleared of all charges, 
people will still remember you as the guy who was prosecuted for giving out handouts to railroad barons. At the time, Blaine was the favorite for the nomination, but this whole scandal was leading a silent majority of Republicans to form in opposition to him. Suddenly, there was a group of Republicans who wanted anyone but Blaine to be at the top of the ticket, and they outnumbered the Blaineyacks. Which is all well and good, but if the Oscar were a thing at the time, I think he definitely should have been nominated for it with that performance. But um, other than Blaine, there were several other candidates who were also competing for the nomination that year, and each of them had their own claim to fame. So there was Benjamin Bristow, who you might remember us mentioning last episode. He was the Republican behind prosecuting the whiskey ring, which was a big deal at the time. But it, unfortunately, he was prosecuting a lot of people involved in his own party and who were involved with the president, who was you know the leader of their party at the time. Um, and that didn't really win him any friends in his own party, um, especially because many felt that he prosecuted the ring a little bit more harshly than he needed to. Next, there was Roscoe Conkling of New York, who was also a big name. And he touted himself as Grant's supposed successor that was named by Grant himself. But Grant himself wasn't exactly enthusiastic about him. And without even an appearance or statement from the man himself, Grant's endorsement had little impact. There was Oliver Morton of Indiana. He was known as the most radical governor of his day. As governor of Indiana during the Civil War, he raised more troops for the war effort than any other governor. But a lot of people felt that He was a demagogue, as well as selfish, ambitious, and unprincipled. And moreover, he had suffered a stroke and was crippled. And while FDR may have been able to use camera work to hide his illness, back in those days, Morton just couldn't, and the nation didn't want their fearless leader hobbling around on crutches. There were others after the nomination, but they were largely just representatives of a particular state. In fact, this is a perfect description of Hayes, whose name was floated largely because he had popularity in his home state of Ohio. But despite being just another candidate who was sent there from his state, Hayes had one other advantage. And that takes us back to what Henry Adams said of him, that he's, quote, a third-rate non-entity whose only recommendations are that he is obnoxious to no one, end quote. And the fact that Hayes was obnoxious to no one made him very few people's first pick, but everyone's second favorite pick for the nomination. So you'll see how that plays in. But as of the moment, Virtually all the big names at the convention had reached out to him as a potential VP pick. But as far as the vice presidency, that really wasn't something that Hayes was after. If he was going to do this, he wanted to be at the top of the ticket. And he was audacious enough to think that he could pull it off. After some speeches and some discussion of the party platform, around 3 p.m., the party turned to the main event, nominating a successor to Grant. The first person nominated was Marshall Jewell of Connecticut followed shortly by Oliver Morton, who was nominated by PBS Pinchback of Louisiana, who was briefly the first black governor and also almost became a senator. Benjamin Bristow was nominated by his campaign manager, John Harlan, with a speech about honor and integrity that didn't really seem to win anyone over. And then with a speech that became regarded as one of the greatest convention speeches of all time, Robert Ingersoll nominated James G. Blaine. And for the life of me, I cannot understand why this speech still has a reputation. It really just seems like an act in political masturbation with a little flowery language thrown in there. Like William Jennings Bryan's Cross of Gold speech, I can understand. But this one just seems like nonsense to me. And audience, I'll let you look it up for yourselves, I guess. Following this major performance and with little fanfare, 
Hayes and Conkling were also nominated. Around 5 p.m., the convention adjourned until the next day, at which point behind-the-scenes maneuvering began in all of the smoke-filled rooms in Cincinnati. Edward Noyes, who was Hayes' campaign manager, made some key moves here. He spoke to the campaign managers of Oliver Morton and Benjamin Bristow, both of whom didn't believe their candidate had a strong shot at the nomination, and they agreed that they'd each test out their candidate on the first ballot, and if he was unsuccessful, they'd throw their weight behind Hayes. The next morning, the balloting began. A candidate would need 379 votes to win. On the first ballot, Blaine had 285, and the next highest vote count was 160 below that. Things looked pretty good for Blaine to start. And for Hayes, who was around fifth, he received only 61 votes, falling behind Bristow, Morton, and Conkling. Blaine continued to lead on many of the following ballots, cranking his tally as high as 308 votes. But around the fifth ballot, people began throwing their weight behind Hayes. And in the end, Hayes came away with 384 votes on the seventh ballot, surprising almost everyone at the convention. William Wheeler of New York was placed on the ticket with Hayes, and following the convention, Blaine sent a telegram to Hayes offering his unqualified support. Hayes was the next Republican presidential candidate, stepping into the shoes of Lincoln and Grant before him. The question was, how would he fill those shoes? So with the Republican National Convention out of the way, we're going to move on then and talk about the Democratic National Convention and how Tilden kind of wrapped that up. So if you attended the Democratic National Convention that year in St. Louis, and you happened to stay at or near the Lindell Hotel, you'd have seen a big banner draped outside the balcony of a second floor room that read, The city of New York, the largest democratic city in the Union, uncompromisingly opposed to the nomination of Samuel J. Tilden for the presidency because he cannot carry the state of New York. The banner may have given you a false sense that Democrats largely disapproved of Tilden at the time, but it was actually quite the opposite. In fact, why would you hang a banner like that unless Tilden is a serious contender for the nomination and you're worried that he might actually win it? And indeed, he was a serious contender for the nomination. In fact, the DNC was largely the opposite of the RNC, which was competitive, chaotic, and surprising that year. Few people at the DNC were asking who the nominee would be. The only question remaining was, how would he become the nominee? While the Republicans had to consider who would benefit from the location of the convention, the Democrats could focus on the longer term, thinking about how they could benefit as a party from the location of the convention. This is how they came to choose St. Louis. As a large Western city, the Democrats hoped to win over the emerging Western states, which were growing in size and relevance over the course of the century. They were also looking to bridge the soft money, hard money divide that was becoming very important in wake of the Panic of 1873. This divide was particularly important out West. So just a quick disclaimer here. Soft money refers to paper money, which was proliferated by the government as a substitute for hard money, which would be gold, silver, or some kind of metal. Soft money in these days is still theoretically tied to hard money. Dollars were gold-backed, but soft money allowed for more currency to be floating around because you could just print more. So here's our regular reminder, especially, I guess, in this season. We're not economists, but here's a quick rundown of what this meant to people at the time. To put it simply, soft money means more money, and more money means money is less valuable aka inflation, something that I guess we're all familiar with at this point. Hard money means less money because there's really only so much gold in the world and you can basically print a theoretically endless amount of paper or like an almost endless amount of paper. 
And less money means that your money is more valuable, aka deflation. So hard money politicians tended to be very worried about inflation and the consequences of runaway inflation. We won't spend too much time explaining why inflation is bad since we've been living in it the past couple of years and anyone who bought groceries in 2022 can tell you why inflation is bad. Soft money politicians tended to be worried about the effects of deflation. In the case of deflation, each dollar is more valuable than it used to be, which means if you incurred a $10,000 debt, that $10,000 is much more expensive now. This is why Westerners tended to be soft money people, because many of them had incurred debt in order to purchase the land that they were living on. And now, in the deflationary environment of the late 1870s, that debt was becoming a lot more expensive. So Samuel Tilden, like many elites of his day, was a hard money man. With his sizable wealth, he never needed to go into debt for any reason, and as such, he was far more concerned with the effects of inflation than its alternative. So the party leadership, knowing that Tilden was an East Coast hard money man, was planning ahead for the need to appeal to these soft money Westerners, and that's why they were holding the nomination in St. Louis, in addition to a bunch of other things that they would go on to do to appeal to these soft money Westerners. After some speeches, the Democrats voted on their platform, which centered on the issue of civil service reform, which was more than a wink and a nod to the then very corrupt Republican Party, and they took a hard stance against soft money, since they agreed they couldn't win New York without it. And after the platform was passed, the vote began for who should bring that platform to the White House. On the first ballot, Tilden received 400 votes, but missed the mark for the 492 that he needed to get in order to win the nomination. He did not have any strong competitors outside of Thomas Hendricks, the governor of Indiana, who got 140 votes. Indiana was a key Western state, and Hendricks was a soft money man, so this is probably where much of his support came from. On the second ballot, Tilden was put over the top with over 500 votes and locked up the nomination. Hendricks was the natural choice for VP since he seemed to make up for everything that Tilden lacked as a nominee. Tilden's reaction to his own nomination was emblematic of the man. That day he had been tending to personal matters. He was consulting with his personal attorney, James Carter, and of course not to be confused with the jazz musician or the peanut farmer president, who hopefully by the time this episode comes out is still alive because I love Jimmy Carter. Um, But this Carter reported being worried that Tilden wouldn't be able to focus on this business matter while the nominating convention was going on on the other side of the country, and naturally he expected that Tilden would be anxious to hear the results. Tilden was not. He didn't seem in the least interested in the outcome. At one point, Carter and Tilden went for a carriage ride, and Tilden, you gotta love it, had the classic New Yorker road rage even before the invention of the car. And so he's whipping around in the carriage like he has a death wish while Carter's clinging to his seat, fearing for his own life. And as the two of them drove around the Albany streets, Carter asked if Tilden wanted to go home and check in, see if there was a telegram telling him that he had been nominated for president. And Tilden replied, not until half past nine. I got to say, that's a power move, just being like, fuck it. Yeah, I don't really care what's going on with this. Just tell me later, I guess. And he gets even cockier because eventually when they did return and sure enough, Tilden's aide rushed to meet him and read off to him, the telegram arrived saying that, quote, Samuel J. Tilden nominated on the second ballot. And the governor replies by just lifting a steaming teacup to his lips like he's freaking Kermit the Frog. And after sipping, says, is that so? Which I love. 
because it just sounds either so cocky or so aloof, depending on how you read it, or maybe even a little bit of both. Yeah, I mean, I guess if you know till, then it's probably more just like aloof. Uh, but but yeah, maybe a little of both, honestly, definitely. And I'm not sure now if they didn't base that Kermit the Frog meme off of this historical moment. So we might be breaking new historical ground here that we might publish a paper on. So just audience, keep an eye out on uh, all the freaking college databases that nobody ever goes to on our paper so if, about that. So if they ever do a Muppets remake of the 1876 election, this is a perfect scene right here. Yeah. And with I mean, I think you you made a, a puppet once, didn't you? I, I did. I took a puppetry class in college. One of the best classes I've ever taken in my life. Yeah, so good. So one, it sounds awesome. And two, that gives us enough credentials that the people from Muppets should expect to you know, approach us uh, to consult on how to make the Tilden puppet. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was thinking that Kermit the Frog would play him, but but whatever, yeah. Oh, yeah, that would be good. That would and be then good. He, could, he could sip the tea like in that iconic kind of meme picture. Yeah, and so look, while he was sipping tea, receiving the nomination, the news was spreading quickly all over the country and all among the Democratic Party that Tilden would be the nominee, and a group known as the Jackson Corps escorted a group of enthusiastic Tilden fans to the Capitol in Albany. And from there, Tilden gave a speech laying out some of his views and expressing his concerns for the perilous state of the nation. He said, quote, In the public administration, everywhere are abuses, peculations, frauds, and corruption so we are almost becoming ashamed of the institutions of our country, and instead of holding them up as examples for the imitation of the oppressed people of other countries, we are confessing them as a scandal in the eyes of mankind. The government no longer exists for the people. The people exist for the government. And this speech was an eloquent one, especially for Tilden, and one can't help but get the sense that this was the man whose time had come. He no longer had the aura of an awkward, sickly intellectual who locked himself in his room with a stack of books by Jefferson and couldn't connect with the outside world. Instead, he was beginning to look like a crusader, a bold and visionary politician who would create a new future for the American people. In fact, in that speech, he was beginning to sound like the patron saint of the Democratic Party at that time, Andrew Jackson. But in truth, Tilden was about as far as you could get from Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson was America's first populist, and he injected an unprecedented amount of chaos into American politics, chaos that would arguably never go away. I mean, just look to the modern presidential debates, which look a little bit more like rhetorical WWE matches, with just politicians dunking on each other, not talking about sophisticated policy. And that's what Tilden was looking to discuss. He wanted to have discussions and enact legislation that was based in these sophisticated policy ideas that he had that he wanted to bring to the White House. I mean, this is, guy was a, a wonkish legal expert, not a revolutionary. He wanted his campaign to be based on a nuanced policy discussion about civil service reform, economics, and ethics in government. But the Democratic Party was looking for no such nuance. The Democratic Party was out for blood. They wanted vengeance for what they saw as nearly two decades of humiliation and authoritarian government. Reconstruction had been externally forced upon the South, and it had damaged the social status of the plantation-owning class, as well as the average white male, who was now seen as equal to the average black male, at least supposedly in the eyes of the, the law and the Constitution. And this was something that white men at the time took great offense to. And the Panic of 1873 had only further vindicated this revenge-hungry section of the Democratic Party 
and it rallied a significant portion of the population to their side. Ordinary people who were otherwise indifferent to the political battle over Reconstruction flocked to the Democratic side when the Republicans seemed incompetent to govern. Neither the racist anti-Reconstructionists nor the aggrieved laborer who now felt resentment towards the Republicans was interested in Tilden's wonkery. They didn't want to talk about reform in terms of obscure policy changes. They wanted to talk about reform in terms of their political enemies winding up in prison, or worse. And while many of them didn't realize it yet, Tilden was not the champion that they were looking for. He was no Andrew Jackson. So this episode would be incomplete if we didn't talk at least a little about Reconstruction, because this is going to be an essential piece of this election. To get a perspective on the state of Reconstruction, let's check in with an icon of civil rights, Frederick Douglass. An aging Douglass attended the RNC where Hayes won the nomination, and in fact, he was one of the first speakers for the event. 25 years earlier, he had given his famous speech called What to the Slave is Fourth of July, which electrified the anti-slavery movement and which was met with roaring applause by abolitionists. And if you haven't read this speech, you should. It's phenomenal. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful speech. Very powerful. Um, but today, with graying hair, Douglas looked out at a Republican Party that was a hollow shell of the one he had known. Republicans were so busy fighting off accusations of corruption and dealing with the ongoing economic crisis that they had forgotten the unifying value that had brought the party together in the first place. Freedom for every American. They wanted to masquerade as the party of Lincoln, but the Lincoln they represented was a corpse, not a president. And in their defense, the political will for Reconstruction was slowly withering away. Northerners had their own problems in the current environment and couldn't justify sending troops and money south to fight for freedmen who they'd never met and didn't probably care much for. The size of the troops stationed in the former slave states was slowly shrinking, and with it shrunk the rights of the newly freed black Americans who desperately needed protection. Had Thaddeus Stevens been alive, he likely would have either moderated his positions or lost his seat, because the American people simply did not have the enthusiasm for civil rights that they had at the peak of radical Reconstruction. The only thing keeping Reconstruction going was Northern resentment, a hatred that the North had for those Southerners who had torn apart their country a decade ago. Resentment, it turned out, was not a particularly good fuel, and it wouldn't maintain the rights of the freedmen. Douglas gave a speech that, when compared to the fiery oratory of his youth, demonstrates the weariness of someone who fought tirelessly for civil rights as those rights were seemingly receding before his very eyes. He said, quote, Do you mean to make good to us the promises in your constitution? It sounded like a rhetorical question, but given the state of Reconstruction, Douglas may have genuinely been wondering. And he went on, quote, You say you have emancipated us. You have, and I thank you for it. You say you have enfranchised us. You have, and I thank you for it. But what is your emancipation? What is your enfranchisement? What does it all amount to if the black man, after having been made free by the letter of your law, is unable to exercise that freedom, and having been freed from the slaveholder's lash, he is subject to the slaveholder's shotgun, unquote. He concluded that it seemed like the Republican Party could, quote, get along without the vote of the black man in the South. And indeed, this was exactly what Republican operators were beginning to conclude. Perhaps fighting for the vote of the black men in the South was simply not worth the time and energy. Perhaps it was better to seek out a voting bloc in the West or to shore up support in the North. But the most tragic part of Douglas's speech wasn't the speech itself, but rather the reaction to it. Gone was the enthusiasm of the abolitionist movement. And instead, Douglas's speech was met with almost complete silence and indifference. 
it wouldn't be surprising to find out that some of the Republicans in the audience were half asleep through it. The lukewarm reaction to the speech affirmed Douglas's point. The Republican Party had given up on Reconstruction, and in effect, they had also given up on that unifying vision of securing the rights of all people regardless of the color of their skin. Immediately following Douglas was a speaker who would win the attention of the audience. He was an Illinois senator named John Logan, who was a former Union general. Logan went on to skewer the Democrats for being the party of Jefferson Davis, the short-lived president of the Confederate States of America. He assured the audience that only a Republican victory in November could ensure the survival of the Republic and the continuance of progress towards liberty. That Logan won the audience over, but Frederick Douglass didn't, tells you everything you need to know about the Republican Party in 1876. It was a party that hated the Democrats, but had forgotten why it hated them. While the Republican Party had in spirit abandoned Reconstruction and its noble goals, there were still quite a few fights left to be had over Reconstruction, and most of them would happen in the months leading up to the election. One such fight would happen in Hamburg, South Carolina. Hamburg was a peculiar place, and it's no surprise that this was one of the places where a clash occurred, since it affirmed Southern racial fears. By 1876, the white residents of Hamburg had moved away and had been replaced by an unusually militant black community. The commander of the town's local militia, A.L. Doc Adams, and his lieutenant, A.T. Attaway, had in the past advocated for the removal of the entire white population in South Carolina, and the town marshal, James Cook, was known for always being able to find a reason to charge and fine white people for crimes no matter how trivial they were. On the 4th of July, the militia was conducting a drill when Thomas Butler and Henry Getson, two white farmers, strolled through the town on their way home. And while accounts differ on what exactly happened here, the militia and the two farmers exchanged unfriendly words, but the militia ultimately let them pass through. Afterwards, Butler's family filed a complaint against Doc Adams, and he was summoned to court, where he apparently lost his temper and threatened the judge, and as a result he was charged with contempt of court and his hearing was set for July 8th. The Butler family hired Matthew Butler, no relation, just same last name, who was a former Confederate general as their attorney for the case against Doc Adams. And General Butler was a real shit-stirrer, he was a racist, and also a prominent political figure in South Carolina. And as a show of force on trial day, he showed up with an armed escort of ex-Confederate soldiers. Doc Adams saw the escort riding into town and decided that he and his militia would hold out in the town's armory. That night, General Butler rode into Georgia and told everyone that a racial conflict was about to break out in Hamburg, and he rode back into South Carolina with a small army of angry Georgians who were looking for blood. With the armory surrounded by an angry mob, attempts were made to negotiate peace, but before anything could be done, gunfire broke out. A young white boy standing in the crowd was killed, and soon after, a cannon was brought in from Georgia, and the armory was bombarded by cannon fire. Doc Adams and many in the militia were able to escape, but James Cook was killed, and many militiamen were captured. Something like seven or eight black men were killed while they were allegedly trying to escape, but some of those were tortured prior to their murder, which raises the question of how do you torture a man who's fleeing from you? Shamefully, a grand jury indicted 94 people in the white mob, but no one was even prosecuted for anything. 
The Hamburg incident became a national sensation. The Republican press called it the Hamburg Massacre. Governor Daniel Chamberlain of South Carolina clung to this language, and he framed the event as an attack by white Democrats on free black Republicans. He also called on Grant to intervene in defense of the black Republicans in his state. This turned out to be a bad political bet for Chamberlain. South Carolina Democrats didn't hate Chamberlain, and he might have won the coming gubernatorial election, but the Hamburg massacre caused the Democrats to turn on him, especially since he called for the much-hated federal intervention. General Butler put forward Wade Hampton as a nominee for the upcoming race, and this nomination was met with enthusiasm from the Democratic Party in South Carolina, who were ready to dump Chamberlain. The Hamburg massacre put Tilden and his advisors in an uncomfortable position. The Northern press had their party surrounded with accusations that they stood for racism, violence, and chaos. The Democrats even talked about the possibility that the Republicans could use such riots as a way to justify their seizing control over the state's administration of the upcoming election. Northern Democrats like Tilden wanted desperately to keep the increasingly chaotic Southern Democrats quiet until election time. But Wade Hampton and Southern Democrats didn't care. Quote, It is not Tilden we are working for, so much as relief from the rule of the robbers here at home. I am not in the big fight. I am in this little fight to save South Carolina. Hampton may not have realized it, but the fights to come were far from little fights. The violence in Hamburg was but a taste of what was to come. Next time on the Almost President's Podcast, with the primaries behind them, Hayes and Tilden kick off their competition in earnest, and a nasty competition it would be, with both sides using every possible avenue to stop their opponent, legal or otherwise. Be sure to tune in next time for more about this ruthless and at times deadly election. See you next time, folks. All right, so we've reached that part of the podcast where we recommend books that we are reading, not necessarily to research the podcast, but books that you may find interesting and that we definitely are enjoying. So, Kevin, what are you reading in February? So, rather than doing what I normally do, which is to recommend a book that most people probably won't wind up buying on Amazon anyway, I actually encountered something that apparently in the blogging world, it's very big. This guy, Dan Wang, who is a writer, a journalist of some kind. He does a yearly letter, mostly writing about China. He's done this since 2017, and it's become one of those things that certain people look forward to. I I recently, I guess not recently, I I got into Substacks maybe like a year ago, and a lot of people recommended this letter in the Substacks that I was reading. So I decided to check it out. It's quite long. It came out in early 2024 here, but it's about the year 2023 and all of the various changes and things that are going on in China in 2023. He wrote it from Thailand, it looks like, which was an interesting place to write it from because there's a lot of expats from China in Thailand. And it's just very fascinating. I mean, obviously, China is a topic that is interesting for a lot of reasons and pertinent for a lot of reasons, given how big China has become and how economically powerful it's become. But The letter is definitely a story of a giant that is struggling and a giant that is potentially in danger of (laughs) collapsing in on itself. 
And it's also kind of a story. Uh, it's kind of a sad story. Almost there's a sense in which a lot of talent is being squandered. A lot of the people he talks about are these like communities of young people who are very talented and intelligent, who have formed communities around crypto, um, which if you're in the U.S., probably makes you think that those people must be douchebags. But in China, crypto is pretty important because it's an authoritarian regime, right? And so it's it's this way for you to be economically separated from the regime. And I think Dan Wang's letter is kind of also a little bit, there's a hint of optimism there, although not much. But if you look for it, there's a sense too in which you can kind of see what China could be if the Chinese Communist Party just sort of let go a little bit and stop trying to control every single part of everyone's lives. And you can really, you know, if you look at what's happened in China, you can see how much damage has been done by the Chinese Communist Party trying to control the property sector, trying to control COVID lockdowns, trying to control the tech sector and destroying many of their most successful businesses. And so, yeah, I mean, it was just, it was super interesting. Uh, Ryan, if you check it out, you'll see at the end, he talks about some books that he likes and he actually trashes, <laughs> well, not trashes, but he speaks a bit negatively of Carl uh, Knaus. Is it Carl Knausgaard? Really? Huh? On what grounds? So he he says, I, I mean, the specific thing he says Too is that myopic he- myopic gazing? Basically, yeah. <laughs> that's, um, fa- that's fair criticism if I've ever heard it. Yeah. He says- I'm not sure why I was never able to get into Nausgaard's My Struggle. Perhaps it is because he reeks of debilitating introversion. So Ooh, there I you like go. He's but, taking a shot at every introverted person out there. That's ugh. Yeah. Like and that. he goes on, he says, and I find something very suspect about a writer who talks about how difficult he finds interacting with other people. I, I don't know how I feel about those criticisms. I thought that I was 90% of myself. writers. That's why they uh, engage in the very inward looking task of writing in the first place. But I mean, it's always interesting because I, I picked up the first volume of my struggle, Canusgard, uh, of course, because I was in a Barnes and Noble and I wasn't really looking for anything in particular. I had just driven there, and I couldn't believe that a dude had written a fictional novel that was five volumes long with a sixth one incoming. Ultimately, six volumes long. It was just that. The only reason the sixth one wasn't out was because it hadn't been translated into English yet. So it was out in Norway. And then you find out this guy is so popular that I think like a double digit percentage of Norwegians have like not only read it, but have a copy of it. Um, You can fact check me on that, but I'm pretty sure. So my cell, I think you were one of the first people I sold it to as well as other people is listen, this dude wrote this six volume autobiographical novel about himself. But it's really good and you should read it, which is like a terrible pitch, but there's no other way to pitch it unless you want to talk about like Proust, which I think would lose even more people. Although I do want to read Swan's Way. Well, I I think it's one of those things where the pitch is so bad that the product itself must be good. Like if somebody's going to pitch you something in such a way that it sounds horrible, like it's like, yeah, he writes about himself for like 500 pages or whatever. The only reason they would be selling you that is because it must actually be good in some way. Yeah, and like you started out in kind of a state of disbelief, and then you sit in it for a little bit, get to like, I mean, um, you know, 50 pages in is when I'm kind of, I have to finish it. Um, but that's how long it takes. You sit in it, you get to around 50th page, and you're like, you know what, I'll stay a while. And then you're like me, and you finish volume four. So, 
I just always yeah. love, uh, I was at the Strand in New York City and uh, they had a table devoted to like memoirs and stuff like that. And uh, they had a one of his books on a stand and the little thing sticking out of the little jokey comment was uh, still struggling. So I will say he, the reason he cited that book and, and, and spoke negatively of it was because he was actually saying how much he liked, I guess, The Morning Star, which is another new book that Kanuskar or I guess Kanuskard, I, I don't know how to say it, but I guess that he had written. So apparently that's pretty good. I don't know. I guess there's another recommendation for you. I mean, I do have to say there's this, I'm, I'm very slowly getting through it. This is a book that I'll read kind of when I need to decompress after teaching through a couple periods straight and it just being a, a lot. The book is called Autumn. I might, I might've talked about it on here before, but I think his name is Nowsgard, but we've, we've probably said every possible way to fuck it up at this point. So if not, there's another one, but he, it's, this is another one that's, the, the pitch sounds kind of goofy, but you also got to be in a cheesy mood before. So I think he has three kids and before, I think it was his third child while his third child was still in the oven, as it were, um, for every season, he wrote every day just about one thing that you would run into in the world, whether it was water, a bug, a table, a chair, and would just, it was basically just his way of just explaining the world to his child before he even got to meet this child. And it's the same way where it like really puts the mundane under a microscope. But I find so much beauty in the way that he does that. And I think he's such a tremendously talented writer. And I can only imagine the privilege of getting to read him in in Norwegian because um, the English translations are just so magnificent. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely one of those things where I've always intended to read it, despite whatever Dan Wang might say. Um, I've always kind of meant to read it. I've heard it's really good. Probably will get around to it at some point. Just haven't quite done it yet. Yeah, I mean, you can always borrow my copy. And you know what, Dan Wang? Just to be uh, not defiant, but to stand my ground, that's going to be my recommendation for this month is Carl of Nausgaard, his My Struggle or Min Comp series. Which we should note there, right? Because this is also something that's mentioned later is I, I do wonder what is this guy's deal with naming things just terribly, terribly close to something that is associated with the Nazis. Apparently his next book is going to be called The Third Kingdom, which basically translates, if you were translated to German, to The Third Reich. And then, of course, my struggle is the name of Adolf Hitler's memoir. So I just Googled it because I remember reading this whole explanation from him because he can speak pretty fluent English as well. So I was watching a, uh, an interview with him a little while ago where he explains the full reason why. But when you Google it, the first thing that comes up is it was a friend's idea. So I might have a little bit of concern about who he's breaking bread with. If that's the suggestion, are oh, you writing a book? You got to call it my, my struggle, man. And not even my struggle, like in his language is min comp. Like it's even closer to mind comp. So yeah, maybe you got better friends that don't recommend Nazi things. Um, unless it is some like literary flourish in the vein of, um, what's that guy's name who, who pissed off all the, um, Islamic extremists. Oh, they, Charlie Hebdo. 
No, the guy who they had a jihad out about. Solomon Rushdie. Yeah, yeah. Let's just, it's some kind of like literary flourish where you're like, my art is so high and elevated that I will take all these risks. I will take all this criticism in order for art. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't mean to accuse him of being a Nazi, but it's just it's a weird creative choice for sure. Yeah, and I think if you're not thinking that, then uh, I would be a little bit more worried. So, I guess ultimately, listeners, that's a roundabout way of saying we will talk to you actually later this week if you're keeping up with our weekly coverage of the 2024 election. And as far as the history, our season two on Samuel Tilden, you'll hear the next part the first Monday in March. So either way, we will talk to you soon and we hope that you enjoyed the show.